All right, well, good morning. My name's David Wyndham. Uh, you may know me, uh, or you may know my sister and her husband a little better than me. Uh, Paige Swindoll's my sister. Uh, if you could see the family resemblance at all. Somebody's already said that. She doesn't like that. She likes telling people that she's my uh, younger sister, but in fact, she's my older sister. But I, I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be here today um, with family, Paige and Josh, and, and their three kids, but also friends. So many in your, in your congregation I've, I've known for a long time. Uh, uh, Stephen, actually, aren't you guys gl- uh, grateful for Stephen? I mean, his leadership in the church? Praise the Lord. Well, uh, Stephen, that first time he actually sang, we were talking about this earlier, first time he sang publicly was uh, while I was preaching one time with our junior high students. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and so it's awesome to see how Stephen's grown. In fact, during that time, he wrote the song, My Treasure, one of his songs that he sings quite a bit. And uh, I've always thought very highly of Stephen just in his love for the Lord and, and the way God has used him to bless the church. Uh, but not only, not only the McNeils, but also um, Mel, uh, Melissa. I saw Melissa and Melanie, and I haven't met your husband yet, but uh, our brother, sorry. I know she got married. Obviously, I haven't met his husband. Or her husband. Her husband. All right. <laughs> but the, the Swaffords and, and of course, the Wayman. Uh, but she still loves him either way, right? Yeah. All right. Okay. But, yeah, the Holbrooks, you know, and, and uh, the Sextons, uh, you know. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with people that, that I've uh, known for a while that I, I don't know, obviously, that I don't know. Um, and, uh, but, but more than just the pleasure of being here, um, this is also a weighty task of, of uh, expositing God's Word as the central focus of worship at Vintage Church. And what I'm grateful for is that we have heard God's Word read, as Katie read for us just a moment ago, and that we'll hear God's Word now. And it's an awesome task and responsibility that I don't take lightly. And, and Bryce, thank you for the trust, even, that you have in me. Bryce and I went to seminary together, and we've, we've had a lot of fun over the years. Um, but, but the opportunity to preach at, at, in this role as the central uh, point, the central focus of worship and seeing God's wisdom for us in biblical parenting— is a task that I don't take lightly and that I'm grateful for. The biblical command to parents to raise their children in the training and instruction of the Lord uh, is, is central for the family. We see that in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul writes and says, Fathers, don't stir up your children in anger, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And uh, I, I love that we have so many kids here, so many, so many teenagers and, and, uh, and those every, everywhere from 18 under. I mean, just uh, uh, I think we're outnumbered, guys. I think we're outnumbered. But what an awesome responsibility that your church has been given to see these young ones uh, reared, raised in the nurture and instruction, the training and instruction of the Lord. And part of that task is we want our our children to be well-formed, right? We want them to be formed in every area of life. I have no doubt that you want to provide for your your children physically, right? We feed our kids, don't we? Hopefully we feed them and and we we understand that they just keep eating and eating, right? Sometimes it never ends. We keep them clothed, warm in the winter, uh, cool in the summer. We take care of their medical needs, their shelter. We teach them to brush their teeth, right? We, we don't let them uh, eat candy and, and eat donuts before bed like my, my little one Maggie would love to do, right? She, she would, why? Because it's not good for them. We want them to be healthy and well. 
We provide for them emotionally, don't we? We want to care for them. We want to affirm them. We want to teach them how to handle the stresses of life and people when they're rude. We want to communicate our love for them that they know uh, that we, we care, that, that we, um, we want to provide for them emotionally. We want to provide for them mentally, right? So we give them an education. We have conversations with them that engage them in their minds. We read books to them, help them with homework. We want them to be well-formed socially, right? We don't want them to, to uh, run around and act crazy like kids tend to do. Kids tend to do that. We want our kids to behave respectably. We correct them when they uh, behave unacceptably. We teach them to be considerate and care for others. We want to provide for them and form them morally as well. We want them to know right from wrong. That's why when they act up, we don't just say no, but we say that's wrong. Understand that what you're doing is, is not good for you. It's wrong. It is, it is uh, not the right path. We want them to know what is good and what is evil and provide discipline. We don't take up these responsibilities as parents because we are the most capable of handling these tasks, do we? <laughs> We're not the, we, we probably aren't the best at providing for our kids in all of these areas. I mean, think about... Um, <laughs> Husbands, men, when you, got, when you were married and uh, that minister who was standing there said, I now pronounce you man and wife, uh, <laughs> just think about um, how you did not realize what that meant, what all that would entail of leading, loving, nurturing, caring. And your wife found that out pretty quick, didn't she? She found out that you didn't have a clue what you were doing as a husband. And you have grown, and she's trained you, hopefully. Well, in the same way, when, when that child was born, when you had a child, that first child, and you cut that um, umbilical cord, right, and you were handed that baby, you realize, I have no idea what I'm doing as a parent. I realize I'm going to have to grow and learn, and they become, uh, you know, kids, and, and they're a little older, and you're like, wow, what a world we live in. And they become teenagers, and you're like, wow, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't get the manual here. But the reason... Uh, why we take up this task and we assume the responsibilities of a parent is, uh, you know, think about this. Somebody can teach my, uh, somebody can um, teach my kids better than I can, especially algebra, chemistry, physics, right? Um, they can help them with homework better. Someone can uh, braid my daughter's hair much better than me. They can teach them social cues a lot better than me. I tell you, if you hang around me very long, you will understand social cues. Somebody can do uh, some, some social training a lot better than me for my kids, all right? Uh, somebody can match clothing a lot better than me. I mean, praise the Lord. My wife dressed me this morning. She told me what to wear because uh, I'm just, there, there are things that I'm not good at. Um, somebody can... Uh, do medical care for my, my kids better than me, right? But I don't assume all of the responsibilities for my children physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, morally, or even spiritually because I'm the best at it, okay? I assume those responsibilities as a parent because in the providence of God, God has given me these children, and this is a responsibility that I rise to, that I, that I seek to fulfill as a follower of Christ because in God's providential care, he has given me these children. And so today as we talk about parenting, one of the most important ways that we can provide for our children, you may have noticed that I haven't mentioned it yet, is in regard to their spiritual formation. 
is in regard to their soul, in regard to their heart, addressing them as spiritual beings with an eternal destiny as they will live forever. Their souls will last forever. They are made in the image of God. So spiritually, we want our children to know the truth, understand who they are and why they were made and why they're here. They're made in the image of God, to know God, to know and understand what's wrong in the world and how what's wrong in the world has been addressed by God. And so today, we'll see that biblical parenting that honors Christ takes responsibility for the formation and instruction of our children, for the glory of God in light of these temporal and eternal realities. Parenting is both temporal and eternal for the glory of God. We, we just heard Deuteronomy 6 read by Katie just a moment ago. And uh, we're going to be in Joshua 24 today. But I want you to connect jo- uh, Deuteronomy 6 with Joshua chapter 24. Y- you probably noticed and heard Toward the end of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6, or toward, toward the end of the, the section we read, it's not the end of the chapter, as Moses is, is speaking to the people, after that famous portion where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, he, he gives them a promise. And he says, Hey, I'm going to bring you into a land, into cities you didn't build. I'm going to give you good things, cisterns. Uh, and he says, Watch yourself and don't forget that I'm the one who's brought you out of, the, out of Egypt into this land. Well, about 25 years later in Joshua 24, um, we see Joshua calls the people into solemn assembly here in chapter 24. And um, in, in chapters 1, 1 to 12, you see the conquest of the land. In chapters 13 to 22, you see the division of the land. And then in chapters 23 and 24, you see... The, uh, that the land was to be kept in covenant obedience. And in order for that obedience to be kept, there had to be a commitment, not only nationally. Notice this is a, a national assembly that he calls at Shechem. But then there's also a, a familial, a family commitment that needs to be made. And there's a personal or individual commitment that needs to be made as well. So let's read this text and see how it both connects with Deuteronomy 6, but also... <coughs> how it, um, it instructs us today in this duty of parenting. What can we glean from it? God's Word says this, beginning in Joshua chapter 24, verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led them through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your own eyes saw 
what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. Thus I gave, you into your, I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you. But not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. It is, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the Jordan, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great things and signs in, the, in our sight and, and preserved us through all the, the way in which we, were, uh, we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after, you have done good, after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made, them, made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord, Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we study this passage, as we look at this text, would you give us wisdom to see what uh, Joshua says to these people, th his people. And Lord, may we uh, take it to heart as your people. 
that in the same way we have a similar uh, pattern but an even greater reality that, uh, that we have as parents. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question of family commitment to the Lord was one that needed to be answered, needed to be settled for the people here in Joshua chapter 24. Uh, for Joshua, it was a, a national concern, as we already saw. It was a, a family concern. It was a personal concern. And as parents, the nurture and instruction of the Lord is both a personal and a family matter in our own homes. And so how did Joshua urge the people of God then to settle this matter? And how should we settle it ourselves? Well, there are three matters of importance I want you to see. The first matter of importance that Joshua addresses is the, the, the matter of uh, remembering God's faithfulness. Remembering God's faithfulness. In, in verses 2 through 13, in verses 2 through 13, we see he focuses on this. Uh, in verse 2, we see that, the, uh, that, that Joshua's reviewing God's history with the people. They had a family past that was shameful. They had a family past that was shameful. In verse 2, we see what that family past was. Abraham and Terah, or Abraham's father, Abraham and Nahor's father, Terah, was what? An idolater. He worshiped other gods, served other gods. Um, and, of course, we understand that that was, that was uh, something that was shameful to them, but it was something that still uh, they needed to remember because this was part of the history that, uh, that they had been brought from, that they should break from. Uh, Psalm 115 talks about idols and says they have mouths but can't speak, ears but can't hear, hands, right? Uh, Isaiah says, he, he kind of illustrates the folly of idolatry. He says, hey, here's a guy who cuts down a tree and then he carves it himself. He takes part of that tree and makes a fire with which he, he uh, warms himself and then bows down to this, this same block of wood just carved in an image and worships it. There, there's a folly, a foolishness, a blindness, a, a futility in idolatry. And, and, it, and it's also something that's shameful. It's something that denies the glory of God uh, and, and worships the works of one's own hands. Uh, when I've had the, the opportunity to travel uh, in, whether it's Nepal or India or, or Thailand, one of the things that you, you see all around are these little statues that people are worshiping that they bow down to, that they serve, that they want to please. And, uh, and it really is sad to see. You see, I saw a woman who looked to be in her 60s who was older, who had gray hair, and she was uh, prostrating herself over and over to try to please the gods. They will walk around temples and spin these prayer wheels, hoping that it will earn them some sort of credit or, or good karma or dharma, thinking that by the works of their hands and the things that they do, they're in some way benefiting themselves and their families. It's futile, and it's foolish. And this was the, the shameful past that marked their family. But even though their, their past was shameful, notice that God was truly faithful to them. Walk with me through some of these verses. In verse uh, 3, we see God called Abraham. He gives him a heritage, verses 3 and 4. In verse 5, God had delivered them from Egypt. In verse 9, God had turned the, the curses that were intended of Balak in sending Balaam, Balak in sending Balaam toward them. And he turned those curses into blessings. 
God had been faithful to give them victory in verse 11 over the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Right? All right? <laughs> All right that was a joke. Anyway. He provided for them, just as he had said in verse 13, right? Land that they did not labor on, cities that they did not build. Why? Why would God be so faithful to this, uh, to this group of people who um, ha- had come from idolatry? They were no different than the other nations around them. They weren't different from any of these uh, ites. The reason that God did it wasn't because they deserved it. It was not because of their perfect obedience. It was, it was simply because of God's faithfulness. We, we read the answer, uh, write down Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. We read the reason in, in, that, uh, in those two verses why God would be faithful to this people and show them such kindness, such love. Those verses say this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The answer, why had God been faithful to them? Why had God shown them such kindness, protected them, provided for them in these ways? The Lord loved you and was faithful in keeping his promises, his word. Notice, this, these, are the, these are words of grace here. This is undeserved, not preconditioned, chosen by grace, redeeming love that God is, is, is pouring out on this people that did not deserve his kindness, who did not deserve his love because of their broken and sinful past as idolaters. And has not God demonstrated faithfulness towards us in an even greater way, in showing us mercy and grace. Thank you, sir. Yes. Hasn't he not done? Here, I'll, t- I'll take that. I don't want to knock it over and spill it. But hasn't God shown us grace in an even greater way in Christ? We have seen the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. You know, I have no doubt that you have a past that was shameful, whether it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or five months ago. And has not God, in every, every step of the way, shown you mercy, shown you kindness, to bring you to this point, in this place, where you have a heart for him that wants to worship him, that wants to serve him with all of your life, and give you that, that sort of desire to be the person individually and in your family that would live for the glory of God in the here and now, but also in the future. And that's either a reality now in your life, or that's something that God is calling you to, to find that same sort of grace in Jesus. But notice, he doesn't just stop with remembering. He, he calls them to a resolution in verses 14 and 15. They needed to remember what God had done in their hearts and in their lives and among their people, but they also needed to resolve to serve the Lord. They needed to resolve to serve the Lord. They needed to settle this matter of the faithfulness of their families. In verse 14, notice they still needed to put away their idols. 
Even though God had been so faithful to them, even though God had been with them, provided for them, and poured out his grace and mercy, notice their hearts weren't still, they were still divided. They were still pursuing other idols. You, you see this in verse 14 where he says, Put away the gods which you, your fathers served beyond the river. In other words, <laughs> when they were in Egypt, they were serving idols. They weren't serving the true God. And God still delivered them from Egypt. And you see uh, over and over throughout this passage the mercy of God to a people who didn't deserve it. And then in verse 15, uh, Joshua sets before them the choice. Would they have the Lord or would they have their idols? He says, choose you this day. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, sometimes we, we, have, um, we have that final statement, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord on a plaque in our, in our homes. I know we do. I'm sure you do. You've at least seen that. But you know, that, that, uh, that, that uh, statement, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, is really part of a choice that, that uh, Joshua calls the people to. You're either going to serve an idol or you're going to serve the Lord. You know, as I was in uh, Nepal or India or, or Thailand, either, any of those places, the idolatry looked so similar. I, I talked with uh, one of the pastors in, in India that we were working with. His name's Rakesh. And Rakesh said, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to minister to someone and to try to uh, do evangelism towards someone that has a, a background in idolatry because that idolatry is so rooted in their hearts. It's hard for them to give up those, those uh, little idols, those statues, those ways of worship, and to really turn in repentance toward the true God. And, and uh, you know, he said, how do you, how do you uh, go about addressing someone like that? And, you know, that's a, that's a, a pretty good question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when uh, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he, he remarks that they had been idolaters. They had been saved and ransomed out of that. And Paul had a very short ministry in Thessalonica. He was only there for a matter of weeks before he moved on. But, you know, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, Rakesh, I'm not going to say we don't have idolatry here in, in the United States. We don't have statues in the same way. But we still have idols, don't we? We have those things that we love and serve, that we give our attention and our affection to. And, and so this passage is just as applicable for us as it was for them. Whom are we going to serve? Are we going to love Jesus and serve him and follow him? Or are we going to have a divided heart and go after other loves and other commitments? It's, a, it's a, uh, a choice that even we need to settle. And notice that in verse 15, Joshua had resolved, he had resolved that he and his family would serve the Lord. This is a personal commitment in his own life, but it's also a commitment that he's, he is um, uh, certain of because of the way he has led, the way he has parented. He says, not only will, will I serve the Lord, he says, but as for me and my house, my children, my family, we are going to serve the Lord. This sort of resolution is, uh, is encouraging to me. I think we see it sometimes in, in our day, in, in the, 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 uh, the, the culture and the society in which we live. We just celebrated a few, <coughs> a few days ago uh, Independence Day, right? And then uh, a month ago, yesterday, we, ce we celebrated the 75th anniversary of, of uh, D-Day. 
Today's my anniversary with my wife. We're, uh, yeah, anniversaries are important. What does the 75th anniversary of D-Day remind us of? Sacrifice. Sacrifice, big time, right? But doesn't it remind us that you had older teenage boys and, and young 20s who were willing to say, I'm going to hop off this boat and look down a bunch of Germans in pillboxes with machine guns and mortars and, and uh, artillery that are going to rain down on my head because I know this, that freedom is worth fighting for. And they, they stormed the beaches of Utah and Omaha, uh, the Americans did. That is a resolve that, that should inspire us, right? We had, we had one man um, who, who was, uh, he, he came onto the shores at Normandy uh, not long after that, that uh, they, they took the beach. He was in a quartermaster brigade, but he saw the carnage that was there. He's uh, 98 years old. His birthday was July 4th. He just got back from a trip to Normandy. Uh, you, you might have seen some of the news articles about him. That the, uh, he reconnected with a love, uh, you know, a little romantic thing that he had while he was over there. K.T. Robbins is his name. Anyway, he's 98 years old. And, uh, you know, I just think of the, the resolve of those men. And uh, when they went back and saw what they saw as young men, you know, that's kind of what Josh was doing here. He's looking back as an old man. He's in his hundreds at this time. And he's remembering. He had seen, he had lived through all that, that God had done. And you know what he was saying? He was saying, my resolve is still the same now today as it was then. And I have no doubt that those men who were on, at Normandy would have that same character. They would do it again. Because they had that same resolve. Should not our resolve be the same? It should be the same to live and serve and lead in our families with parents. But, you know, resolve is, is uh, very important because of this reason. J.C. Ryle said, Parenting is a subject on which all concerned are in great danger of coming short of their duty. This is preeminently a point in which men can see the faults of their neighbors more clearly than their own. They will often bring up their children in the very path which they have denounced to their friends as unsafe. They will see specks in other men's families and overlook beams in their own. They will be quick-sighted as eagles in detecting mistakes abroad and yet blind as bats to fatal errors which are daily going on at home. They will be wise about their brother's house but foolish about their own flesh and blood. Here, if anywhere, we have need to suspect our own judgment. This, too, will do well to bear in mind. I would encourage you, um, if you want to read his thoughts on parenting, J.C. Ryle is one of my favorite commentators. He's, I, I love reading his stuff. He, he died in 1900. Um, he was, an, he was an, an Anglican minister in the evangelical wing of the party. And his, his uh, commentaries on the Gospels are fantastic. But this book is, is excellent. You can get it for free. If you go to chapellibrary.org, chapellibrary.org, okay? C-H-A-P-E-L-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y.org, chapel library. I'm giving you time to write it down, right? Okay, he gives 17 duties of parents. So what do we need to be resolved to do? Uh, I think his 17 duties of parents are, are helpful. Um, you think 17, <laughs> he gives 17. I never even heard a 17-point sermon. Well, let me, give them to you, let me give them to you really quick, okay? And if you want to read his exposition of each of these, what he does is he really takes uh, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way she go, and when he gets old, he will not depart from it. That principle in 
uh, in Proverbs. He takes that and he says, what are the duties of parents? And here are the 17 that he, he suggests. Number one, train your child in the way they should go, not the way they would go. The way they should go, not the way they would go. Uh, we, we all understand that, it, that um, our children have uh, within them indwelling sin, right? They are, they are corrupt from birth. They're sinners by nature and by choice. And if we were to leave them to their own desires, their own will, they would certainly go astray. And we need to train them in the way they should go. We should train up our children with all tenderness, affection, and patience. We need to, we, our kids need to know we love them and that we care for them. And that what we do is we lead them and parent them is for their good because we care for them. We should train our children with an abiding persuasion on your mind that much depends on you. Much depends on you. Much depends on you as a parent. Train, up, uh, train with this thought continually before your eyes that the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered. One question we should always ask is, how will this affect the souls of my kids? How will this decision, this, this thing that I engage in, affect my children and their souls? We should train our children with a knowledge of the Bible. Instru in, instruction from Scripture should be primary in our homes, in our family worship times, in our times of, of uh, engaging our children. The Bible should be foundation, fa foundational. We should train up our children with a habit of prayer, training our ch children how to pray, and also letting our children hear us pray, not just a, Lord, thank you for the food at mealtimes, but to, to pour all our hearts before God. We should train them uh, to habits of diligence and regularity about public means of grace. Well, what does that mean? We should train our children. We should teach them that it's important to gather with the people of God, to worship corporately, to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed. These are public means of grace whereby God affects our hearts and forms us and shapes us as the people of God. We should train them to a habit of faith, right? We need to, to teach them that they can trust us, that when we tell them to do something, it's good for them. We want their best. We need to train them also to a habit of obedience, a habit of obedience, right? No questioning, no reasoning, no disputing, no delaying, no counting. One, two. What's that teaching them? Teaching them they have three seconds to disobey you, right? Immediate obedience, um, right? We want to train them to obey, not to repeat ourselves, right? We want to train them to a habit of always speaking the truth. Train our children to always tell the truth, even when they've done something wrong, that we'll deal with the consequences, but the truth is important. Train them to a habit of always redeeming the time, not to be idle and wasteful with their time, but to use their time for the best benefit of the glory of God. Train them to a constant fear of overindulgence. We don't want to uh, let them go on with all of their desires, seeking to fulfill themselves, but we want to correct them. We want to punish them when they're at fault. We don't want to spare discipline. We don't want to let them have everything they want. We want to train them remembering that uh, how God trains his children, right? We understand that God allots for us in his providence all that we need. God provides for us, gives us what we need. He takes care of us. He brings us through both valleys and mountains. Even the difficult things that we go through in life are formed and fashioned and shaped by his hand to make us who he would have us to be. 
If we really believe that all things work together for good, then even when we go through terrible times, when we go through hard times, we understand that God is with us and he's shaping us, he's molding us as a good father who loves us. He's allowing trials and afflictions, and he also provides and gives us all good things we enjoy as a good father. We want to train our children to remember continually the influence of our own example, our own example. What example are you giving, are you laying out, are you living before your children, what pattern are you setting forth? Would you want them to follow in that pattern? And then we need to train them to remember continually the power of sin. The power of sin. When we deal with our children, we don't need to have unhealthy expectations of them, do we? There can be un- unhealthy expectations of perfection. But when we understand that, uh, and we, we teach them about the power of sin, then when they fall into it, we have, a, we have a, a grid, a means by which to handle it, to help them understand that they're not perfect, to take them back to the cross and see their need for Christ, their need for God's grace. And we can practice grace with them. We need to train them remembering the promises of Scripture, and we, we need to also train them with the continual blessing on all we do. We need to pray that our parenting would be effective, Right? We need to train uh, our children with, a, with a, uh, a, a reliance on God for his grace. Because why? We can't always change our children's hearts. So uh, is this sort of commitment absent from your home? Are you, as a parent, are you engaging in these ways and these duties with a resolve similar to the resolve that Joshua has when he says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All of this is is wisdom that's garnered from Scripture. And as we think about our duty, I pray that godly devotion would mark our homes more than just Christian decoration, that this wouldn't just be a plaque that hangs on the wall of our home, but that this would be something that we commit ourselves to as parents who want to honor Christ. Uh, An example of this, uh, I I told... uh, told Griffin and, and Morgan and maybe Justin earlier that I, I've been doing a lot of uh, study recently in one of my seminars at school. And, um, you know, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, you would think that Jonathan Edwards would have been a really harsh and stern father, right? I mean, here's this man who preached a sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? Uh, and he sparked the revival in 1734 that, that is called the Great Awakening. You would think that Jonathan Edwards would have been this, this really hard and immovable father. He had 11 kids, eight girls and three boys, okay? Uh, you know, t- to let that sink in, I-, I wrote their names out. And when I wrote their names out, I was like, he had 11 kids, right? <laughs> Sarah, Jerusha, Esther, Mary, Lucy, Timothy, Susanna, Eunice, Jonathan Jr., Elizabeth, and Pierpont. Eleven kids. And I don't know who has the most kids in here, but uh, three is, is, uh, is a lot, right? Three is, three is a lot for us. And uh, I, I told my wife one time, I, I would love to have a dozen kids. I love kids. Um, and she said, well, it'd have to be with your second wife because I think I'd die along the way. Um, but, but uh, you know, even as I, I thought about that, I thought, what a, a, a weight of responsibility that we have as parents. What a weight he had. Samuel Hopkins, who lived with the Edwards for a period, wrote this, that his children uh, revered, reverenced, esteemed, and loved their father. Edwards, 
he, uh, he took this, the, the, his 11 children aside individually into his study, singly. And he would regularly take them aside and ask each of his 11 children about the, the state of their soul. How is your soul? Tell me about your, your, uh, your heart before God. Think about that. Isn't that an incredible model? He spent an hour before dinner each evening giving full attention to his children for whatever they wanted to talk about. He spent Saturdays training them in the Westminster Shorter Confession as he would uh, ask them questions and, and then he would exposit the answers. He would not only give them the answers, but he would explain it to them. This was his, his devotion and duty. And he had a lasting relationship. His daughter Esther has uh, written a diary that's the earliest, the earliest extant um, diary of a woman in early America. She wrote a, a book of letters to a friend of hers named Sarah, uh, Sarah uh, Prince. And one of the things that she said, she, she, she would go through terrible times of struggle, both with her health and, and just in life. And she, she got to go, it took her, uh, it took her about a week to, to get from where she lived in Newark to go to New York and then travel to, um, to Massachusetts where her parents live. And when she got there, though, here's what she said about her father. This is, this is now her as an adult. She's about the age of, of 24 here, 24, 25. And she says this. She says, Last Eve, I had some free discourse from my father on the great things that concern my best interest. I opened my difficulties to him very freely, and he as freely advised and directed. The conversation has removed much distressing doubts that discouraged me in my Christian warfare. He gave me some excellent directions to be observed in secret that tend to keep the soul near to God as well as others to be observed in a more public way. What a mercy that I have such a father, such a guide. Isn't that incredible that his, his daughter would say that to her friend in a letter, in correspondence? What a lasting relationship, a lasting legacy as well that the Edwards have uh, multiple politicians, doctors, lawyers, um, all that's there. Anyway, so when you think about this, though, you think about Jonathan Edwards, you think, goodness, I've got to be Jonathan Edwards in order to be a good parent? Well, we should resolve similarly to raise our, our uh, families. But notice in verses 16 to 28 here in our passage in Joshua 24 that we, we need to realize our need for God's grace if you don't realize the incredible responsibility of parenting, that you've been entrusted by God with kids whose souls will one day meet you before the judgment seat of God. Is that not heavy? That one day you will see your kids and they will be there in judgment with you and much of their spiritual Formation and the legacy of your life will have been how they were formed. Is that weighty? So weighty. So weighty. There's a uh, there's a, a story about a man who, on his deathbed, he looked at at all of his kids. And he said, do not meet me at the judgment seat of God unprepared. 
What a huge responsibility that we have. This isn't a, here's, here's what to do if you do this, everything will be okay. No, you need God's grace in this task of parenting. And if you don't feel the weight, then you don't realize the incredible responsibility that you've been given by God. Notice, notice what Joshua says. Joshua gives them, he reminds them, he gives them this, this call to resolution. And then notice in verse 16, he says, The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Notice, this is what they were already doing. And then Joshua says this. He says, and they, were, they recount everything. They say, they say all these things. Notice what Joshua says in verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. So what does he do? He calls them to this resolution of serving the Lord. And then what does he say to them? You can't do it. It's like me standing up here saying, hey, listen, here's what Jonathan Edwards has done. Here are the 17 points of Christian duty that J.C. Ryle has given us. Here's the pattern we give to resolution in Joshua chapter, uh, chapter 24. Oh, and by the way, you can't do it. Give up, which is a good, which is a good, uh, a, a great, um, a great instruction for us to see. We need God's grace in this. We need God to, to help us and form us and shape us and carry us through this. Because what happened? This is a cautionary tale for us because while they're saying, we're going to do this, and Joshua says, you can't, notice their response to Joshua was, no, we're going to do it, and we're going to make a covenant, and we're going to grasp hold, and we're going to take charge of it. And what do they do? Within a generation, they're uh, doing the same exact things. You see in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were um, around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. This is a cautionary tale because as much resolution as we might have, our own strength of character, our own pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and fulfill this duty is something that we would ultimately fail at without the grace of God. We need God to empower us. Notice, this is the same thing they said when they heard the law read. They heard Moses read the law, and you know what they said? We're going to do it. What did they do? Break, broke the covenant. Joshua says, hey, fulfill the covenant vows you've made to God here as a parent. We need to be faithful to God. He's told us, don't forget him. And they say, we are going to do it. And notice, without the grace of Christ to change our hearts, there is no hope of us doing this. Without us building our hopes, our lives, our responsibilities as parents upon Christ, we would have no hope for this. When, when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, don't provoke your children in anger, but, but raise them up in the training and and admonition of the Lord, this is something that isn't just a law that he doesn't also give us the means to fulfill through the grace that we receive in Christ. How do we see that? We just read the rest of Philippians, um, the rest of Ephesians, right? Our deadness, how God has loved us, and through faith we are, have our hearts changed, and we begin to walk in newness of life, new life, 
This isn't something that flows from our old life. It's also something that's not transactional because not only is there a, not only is there a commitment for parents, but there's a reception of children to our parenting. And you know what we can't control? We can't control their hearts. We can't control how they will receive our parenting. We can't control whether they'll love Christ, whether they one day will repent and believe and be saved. We can't control. In, those are uncontrollable variables. This isn't transactional. You do these duties, you get these results. This is, you pour your life out into your kids and you may not ever see the, the spiritual fruit. I pray that we would, right? We want our children to love Christ and serve Christ. But we don't know that they will. There is no guarantee here. So we need God's grace. We also need God's grace because none of us knows what the future holds in store. None of us knows what the future holds in store for us as parents or for our children. We don't know what the road ahead is like. We know that God is good and his grace is sufficient. And we will need his grace. For Esther Edwards Burr, the last letter she wrote in this book is uh, one of her writing to her, her friend, Sarah. And she says, she's talking about her husband, Aaron Burr Sr., who uh, was going to preach the funeral of the governor at the time. On September 2nd, he left home, and uh, sent, she sent her husband out, and she writes about her son, uh, who is at that time less than two years old. And she says, Aaron is a little dirty Noisy boy, very different from Sally, her older daughter. Almost in everything, he begins to talk a little. He is very sly and mischievous. He has more sprightliness than Sally, and most say he is handsomer, but not so good-tempered. Well, what we find is that from the funeral, Aaron Burr Sr. comes home with the chills and fever and malaria. And three weeks later, on September 24th, Aaron Burr dies. He was the president of Princeton Seminary, the second president there, and uh, leaves Esther uh, at the age of 26 as a widow with two small kids. Princeton calls her father to, uh, to come and be the, the new uh, president of, of Princeton Seminary. He leaves Yale and, and goes to Princeton. And uh, about two months after he's installed as the, as the uh, president of, of Princeton Seminary, he dies March 22nd, 1758. Just a couple weeks later, Esther herself dies of fever. They'd both taken an inoculation, smallpox inoculation. They had these, these uh, sores that formed in their throat and eventually it killed them. So here Esther is, loving the Lord, walking, wanting to follow after the Lord, have a heart devoted to the Lord, loving her children, she leaves two children with no parents, right? We don't know what the future holds, do we? We don't know that our kids will make it to adulthood. We don't know if we ourselves will get to see them live to adulthood, right? We need God's grace. Her brother, younger brother, Timothy, at 21, takes up the, uh, the care of her two children. Of course, and, and here's another thing. All 11 of, of uh, Jonathan Edwards' kids loved the Lord Jesus and served him. But um, Aaron Jr., the two-year-old son of, of Esther and Aaron Sr., who uh, was raised by Timothy Edwards, his uncle, you know, he grew up to become the, uh, the, president, the, the vice president of the United States under, uh, under Thomas Jefferson. 
You're probably familiar with uh, Alexander Hamilton and the duel that he and Aaron Burr had, and Aaron Burr shot him just above his right hip, and, uh, and he died not long after that. Aaron Burr Jr. did not love the Lord and did not follow the Lord. Why? I think some of it has to be because he had two parents who both died and were absent from his life. And he did not have that same sort of love and care. At the age of four, he ran away from his uh, Uncle Timothy's home. At the age of seven, he did the same. He went as a teenager to study with his grandfather's, one of his best friends. He rejected the teaching of God's word and stole a horse and, and fled. And his Uncle Timothy had to pay for the horse. And uh, eventually, I mean, just through his life, tragic tale. What do we see? We don't know what the future holds, but we entrust our lives and our kids and all that we have in the hands of a faithful creator while doing good, knowing that as we have parented in a way that as best we can, we want to seek to fulfill the duties of Scripture, we remember God's grace, we resolve to do good, and we also see our realization on the need for his grace in our hearts and our lives. Amen? I mean, let's pray. Father, we see this is a task that is far beyond us. We need you in this to be the, the parents that we need to be. Lord, would we have hearts that would train up our children to honor you, to love you, to know your word, to pray, to seek after you. And Lord, would you give us wisdom and would you give us the, the mercy in our lives to model it for them every day? Would we commit ourselves to these things practically and Lord, may we also rely on you deeply to be the biblical parents, to establish kingdom homes in our, in our community and in this world. And Lord, would you bless each of these children here. I pray for their hearts and their souls. Lord, would you even now continue to form them by your word, to love you, to, to want to know you, to want to, be, to, to, want to follow in righteousness and, and faith in Christ and to reject the wicked way of the world that's all around us. Lord, would you fit this church, this family of families, for this task as they build kingdom homes and as they are a kingdom church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.